Hi, I'm Leah Lane, an award-winning travel writer and author of Places I Remember, Tales, Truths, Delights from 100 Countries. On this podcast, we share conversations with travelers about fascinating destinations and memorable experiences around the world. On this last episode of 2021, we have a treat, a compilation of some of the best memories from Places I Remember. We'll get to that in a minute. First, I'm excited to announce that in 2022, we're going on video as well as audio. Every other week, I'll be hosting guests and having conversations with the world on this Places I Remember podcast as usual. And also, bi-weekly, I'll be on YouTube with Places I Remember tips and trips. So we'll have a bi-weekly podcast and a bi-weekly video. You'll not only be able to hear me, but now you'll see me and some cool visuals as well. So please follow us wherever you get your podcasts, tell your friends, and look for us on YouTube in February. Now, the name of the podcast is Places I Remember. So we ask our guests to tell stories and share memories with us throughout the episode. And at the end, we ask them to give us a favorite travel memory. On this special double-size episode, as a gift to you, I've compiled my favorite guest stories and memories. And if you like the memories, you can go back and listen to the full episodes wherever you listen to podcasts or on my website, placesiremembermelaine.com. Let's begin. If you love the magic of discovery when you're traveling, Heidi Sarna, who wrote Secret Singapore, has a fascinating memory in episode 39. It encourages us to poke around and go off the beaten track when we travel. I had read about an old Malay mansion or palace, even it was described, just off of a busy road near the Botanic Gardens, and it, which is near where I live. And I just couldn't believe it. And I kept reading these blogs and then I tried to find it. And then the first attempt, I just was like walking in circles and getting bitten by mosquitoes. And, but I kept reading, it was there. And then finally I got better instructions from one of the bloggers. And I, call, I really bushwhacked through the jungle with long pants on and you know mosquito repellent. And it was just like a quarter mile up this little hill in a really heavily wooded area. And there were the ruins of a Malay royal palace and, and it's still there, oh it's such a thrill. So in a way that was a symbolic moment too of like hidden in plain sight, there really are more layers to Singapore. A unique memory comes from Millie Ball, former travel editor and Mardi Gras queen who talked about New Orleans in episode two. You'll love the sweet surprise. As I told you, there are a million carnival balls here and. You have the social ones, the debutantes are in, then you have, that's maybe 15, but the rest of them, every different group in the city has its own carnival ball. They're men, some are men's crews and some are women's and some are mixtures. And I was queen of two balls. One when I was in college and that was where your family, you know, if your family has some connection, somebody in college is queen and a member of the ball who's much older is the king. But when I was 13, I was queen of something called the Children's Carnival Club that my grandmother helped found with two other women. And my my king was 12. So we were 12 and 13, very precocious age. And he wore a uh, blonde page boy wig and white tights underneath his tunic. And I think he had elevator shoes on because I was (laughs) tall at the time. And I had a ponytail through my crown uh, in the back. And what's what's really interesting about this is that the organization is almost 100 years old now, 
and we are the only king and queen to ever get married. And we married in our mid thirties. Oh so my goodness! Really <laughs> Does he still have a blonde page boy? And I don't know. No, he's, he's it's gray and sort of going away now. <laughs> I like Creatures of the Sea, and three of our guests tell us wonderful stories about just that. In episode 40, we talked to Donna Sandstrom, founder of The Whale Trail, and she tells a heartwarming story of a little orca named Springer. Here in West Seattle, near where I live, in 2002, a young orca was discovered uh, here in Puget Sound, and she was lost, alone, and she turned out to be 300 miles away from home. It was her calls that identified her as a northern resident or her mother had died, but her family, her grandmother and aunts were still alive. So there was no way she would naturally be reunited with them. NOAA Fisheries, the agency responsible for managing marine mammals, had a big dilemma on their hands. What should they do with this little orca who was down here by herself? And we helped persuade them that she should have a chance to go home, go back to her family and not be sent to an aquarium. And and even more so not be rehabilitated through an aquarium, but rehabilitated somewhere in Puget Sound so she could stay as wild as possible. And happily, they thought it was a risk worth taking. They thought there was a good enough chance that she, she should go back to her family. And NOAA Fisheries, the Department of Fisheries, Oceans in Canada, and the Vancouver Aquarium committed to the first ever in situ rehabilitation of an orca. And we, the community, a group of seven nonprofits, worked together to support them. And it was an incredible time. And every day we were wondering, the little whale, her name was Springer. Her name is, uh, or her ID number was A73. She was a two-year-old orca and she turned out to be resilient and she didn't have any serious diseases. She had a bad case of worms. She was rescued. Uh, she was dewormed, test, tested to make sure she wasn't carrying diseases and carried home on a donated catamaran where her family came to get her less than 24 hours after she was returned. She came back the next year with her family and the year after that and the year after that. And today she's got two calves of her own. Have you ever been snotted on by a whale? Jason Flesher, expedition leader in Antarctica, explains in episode 33. One thing which is magnificent about Antarctica, if wildlife you want to see, then you need to go because it's the largest wildlife refuge in the world. So you can't hunt in Antarctica. So there's no fear of humans, it's curiosity. So you'll have the penguins, the seals come up to you, you know, just curious of you. The whales, when you're in a Zodiac and the whales will come spy hop right next to your Zodiac because they want to see what you are because they don't know what you are. Or, and I can't tell you, so few people in the world can ever say they've been snotted on by a whale. <laughs> the whale will come up next to you. And when they blow, you know, it's not just water they're blowing. And especially if a whale has a cold, you'll get snotted on. But I'll tell you right now that so few, less than 1% of gone to Antarctica can actually say they've been snotted on. How about getting up close with polar bears? In episode nine, Norwegian travel expert Harold Hansen tells us about his surprise encounter with them in Norway. I remember the first time I, I went there, we were sitting eating and we were sort of sailing among some islands. And suddenly, I mean, these islands were so close to the ship and we were sailing and I was looking at a window and there was a polar bear with two, two pups, I guess they call them. 
<laughs> we'll take so it. He got the gist of it. And the mother was looking at us and she was eating from seal. But she was just looking there. I mean, it almost like if you went on deck, you could have touched the, the polar bear. Wow. The experience and the kids were just like looking at us and one stood up on the behind. I mean, the oh leg. My goodness. And it was oh. like, I get goosebumps just talking about oh, it. Oh, it sounds terrific. In episode 26, American Idol and So You Think You Can Dance producer Simon Fuller shares a travel memory of eloquent simplicity about nature and family when he was filming the documentary Serengeti in Tanzania. The special memory, this is sort of part one and part two. The part one was I actually, I mean, I've been to Africa many, many times to many different countries and a and, and great number of wonderful trips and safaris. There was one trip where I actually went specifically to just recharge my batteries and to think about projects in my career. And that was the trip where I came up with the idea of Serengeti. Uh, so that was obviously found and important. But the part two to that was that I got to take my three young daughters there after Serengeti had broadcast, um, or as we were making it at least, and shared the wonder of that beautiful part of the world with them and so to see them see an elephant in the wild and a lion and all the many many beautiful creatures we saw to see their reaction to it for the first time or oh, actually they were younger they were they were three and a half and um, eight and a half at the time nothing will ever beat that for me that's the memory i would take to my grave it was just the, the innocence of young humans and the innocence of nature meeting and and that purity and the love, no, it wasn't fear, actually. It was just awe. Uh, it was just, uh, that will be a memory I will, will last forever and ever. Have you ever tried to cram a large item in your luggage? In episode 25, Ahmed Taumi, a top guide in Morocco, tells of a souvenir we won't forget. One day I was with the couple that have a little young, little young boy, you know, nine years, nine, ten years old. He was a bit spoiled. And when, and once all we, we were touring the outskirt and so, and then I told him, okay, do you want to see the camels? He said, yes, I would love to. So we stopped at the camels. It was by the month of April. In March, the female camels start giving birth. Okay. So we stopped in there. They, he rode and they were taking pictures and so, and he saw a little cute baby camel. And he was starting to cry and he started to say, I want to take this camel with me, little baby camel, you know. It took me about three hours to convince him that camel cannot be taken into the plane. <laughs> it took me, <laughs> took me about three hours to convince that little boy. Lori Erickson, one of America's foremost writers on spiritual travel, describes the beauty of an Italian village in episode 30. Assisi is so beautiful. It's a hilltop village, beautifully restored, full of churches, the tolling of bells, of people coming there from around the world, and beautiful art. Many of the churches, especially the basilica, is full of some of the most beautiful examples of art ever created. So, I mean, Assisi is is just like a, a small little outpost of heaven. I, it is, and I it, it's not spiritual, but I went to a jazz festival there, which was very, <laughs> very, to me, uh-huh. spiritual in its own way. Music is also a form, a form of worship, I think, yes. Absolutely. In episode 21, Mountaineer Jim Davison, 
author of The Next Everest, Surviving the Mountain's Deadliest Day and Finding the Resilience to Climb Again, remembers how he felt as he finally summited. Yeah, it really is burned into my memory, standing on that ridge at 29,000 feet, watching the stars disappear and the sun coming over the plains. Uh, you know, it took me a long time to get there. And, you know, I've been striving for it. And, you know, you, you get those goals and you want to do those goals. But it is really true that it's what the journey can do for you, how the journey will refine you into a better version of you. The good days and the bad days. So I didn't have any huge celebration when I summited. I just felt very humbled that I was able to take this journey and get there and very grateful for the people that had helped me and the things I'd learned along the way. So it, it really is not so much about ticking that thing off as going on the journey to learn what you're supposed to learn and becoming a better version of you. I think that's what travel does for us. And I think that spills over in a good way into our lives. Episode 20, Traveling Jim Crow to Now with actor Stephen Bishop and his mom, won a silver at the prestigious Davy Awards. And if I may humble brag, our entire podcast also won a silver. Here, Stephen has a reality check in the Dominican Republic and South Africa while traveling as a person of color. I was in the Dominican and I was talking to my cab driver. I noticed that they had, you know, what I, I knew before I had ever been because I played baseball with Dominicans and they have what looked to be black Dominicans. Like they look like African-American or African people. They look like black people. And they have Dominicans that are more fair skinned with straighter hair and look more Latino. And and I asked them if they have racism or colorism in their country, because, you know, I come from America and we deal with discrimination and we have these biases towards each other that, you know, I wonder, do you guys have here? I mean, do you do the darker skinned Dominicans get treated differently or better or worse than the, the lighter skinned Dominicans? And the guy said, no we're all Dominicans. And I thought that that was a, a really cool answer to hear. We don't see that. We're just all Dominicans. Whether that's true or not, I, you know, I, I only got to ask that one person. I didn't go do a, a you know, a poll around the, the island, but right. it was cool for that one guy to, to say it. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I was in Cape Town, South Africa, and it wasn't a bad experience, but it was an experience of one of those fearful things. Um, I was at a restaurant and having good conversation with some, some guys that I, you know, had just met at the, at the sushi bar and, you know, we were just talking and talking and they invited me to go to, to some party that was away from where my hotel was maybe 40 minute drive away. And I was like, oh, you know, I'll give you guys a call. You know, we exchanged information and I'm like, oh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. Yeah, it sounds fun. I'll, you know, I'll check it out. But as the night went on and I, the time for me to go started to approach, I started being, you know, my gut was like, no, this is not a good idea. You don't know these people. It's 40 minutes away from the hotel, you're in a place where racism was just rampant and vicious. Everybody may not have gotten over it yet. Yeah, you, you probably shouldn't do this. So I pulled out. I didn't, you know, I ended up not going. And it was, they, they could have been nice guys, you know what yeah. I mean? But but they, they also could have been trying to lure me into something that was was bad for my existence. And that's what I felt. I was like, these guys are trying to trick me. These guys are trying to pull me into something that's going to get me killed. Wow. So, and, and it was all based on fear and anxiety and reputation. You know what I mean? So that yes. was, that's a, an experience that still kind of sticks with me as, as a kind of a negative experience, ne not negative so much from the outside 
stimulus, but negative in the fact that I, I had to live through and think through that type of a what if situation. And it was, it wasn't fun. And it just, it, it kind of shook my, uh, my spirit a little bit in my, my outlook on humanity. You know what I mean? It was like, man, I, I, I don't trust people. And that was kind of a, a, a shakeup for me. It was like, man, you know, you're supposed to trust people until they give you a reason not to. But there was just a strong, strong feeling in me that was like, this is not, not in your best interest. And that, that was disappointing. You know, it was disappointing yeah. that the world had shaped me to believe that certain people were out to do me harm. Yes, uh, I hear you. My family travels the world and you've heard memories from some of them. My granddaughter, Sabrina, at 17, has been my youngest guest so far. She's been lucky to travel all over the world, but her memory of being on the border of Israel and Syria in episode 23 made her feel grateful. I think in a very intense memory I have, but something that definitely sticks out is when I went to the Golan Heights. In so, Israel? Yeah. Yeah, in Israel. So we were kind of thinking, we'd go on like, there, I think there's a little like, what's the term? A community there. I think we were just thinking we'd get a little tour around that. A kibbutz. What, a kibbutz. Yes, that's it. But what happened in reality was very different. So this guy like took us in like a Jeep all around the places in the Six Day War and all these abandoned buildings, but just on like a thousand feet away from us, like just on the other side of this like little river, it was Syria. And we went to eventually, we settled in this little rundown building from the 1967 day war. And there was graffiti everywhere. There was debris everywhere. There was no windows, but you could just look out and see the country of Syria right in front of you. And my dad told me that when he went to Syria, it was like the nice people he ever met. So when I heard like a loud bang on the other side, and I think I saw like people running, even though it was a very rural part, it there was still people. It made me very emotional because number one, it felt so real to me. You could see this wasn't just something on the news. It was something real. And the guy there was like, yep, the rebels are fighting again. I started crying because I just felt so bad for everyone there. But also mm -hmm. I felt, because I don't know, I came on that trip worrying about my grades at school. And then I realized how right. lucky I was in the bigger context of the world. And it made me want to do something about it. And at one part specifically, we heard footsteps and we were like, saw like guys with guns just walking. And I was like, yep, this is it. But it was just the IDF. It was so, it was also sad how to see how, I guess, militarized the border was. Right. You know, and how different the countries were, even though they were just so close to each other. Speaking of conflicts, my son Carrie, a history buff and professor, ends our discussion of a road trip to the World War I and World War II battlefields of Belgium and France with a stunning perceptive connection between those two wars in episode 18. One of the best parts of uh, the experience was were the memorials and cemeteries that were adjacent to the battlefields, not necessarily the battlefields themselves. Of the many cemeteries we went to, one of the more interesting ones was one of the Imperial German army cemeteries in, I believe this was in the Somme, the Battle of the Somme. These German cemeteries were sort of much, much less traveled. There was nobody there. The crosses were very Spartan, dark, thin, steel crosses, and a very Germanic uh, very World War One, but very beautiful at the same time, just because of the contrast of, say, the sort of white memorials that the uh, allied countries' cemeteries have. These were black steel crosses. And we were in one in, one German cemetery in particular in uh, Vermandovier's adjacent to the battlefield of some and featured hundreds of these black steel crosses, very haunting. 
and we were walking along the grounds and in the back of the plot were a few stone markers, not steel crosses, but stone markers. And lo and behold, they had the Star of David on them. And sure enough, these were grave sites of Jewish German soldiers who fought and died side by side with Christian soldiers of the Imperial German Army. It's just staggering to think that 15 years later, the family of these fallen Jew Jewish soldiers, soldiers were subject to Nazi fascism, the Holocaust. And then you think of the irony when you bookend this with the American cemetery in Normandy, where 26 years later, the Jews fought side by side with their Christian uh, brothers in the American army and in the American armed forces as uh, Jewish liberators of Europe. And so I just think that ironic bookend of that, uh, the 26 years between the two cemeteries, the, uh, the inclusion of the Jewish soldiers in the World War I cemetery for the Germans, and the Jewish soldiers for the uh, uh, American armed forces in Normandy. So uh, that's something that uh, I'll always remember, you know, the beauty of that and the irony of it. Meeting people is one of the joys of travel. In episode 15, my son Randall, chief content officer of Forbes Media, remembers meeting the old fisherman from Hemingway's novella, The Old Man in the Sea in Cuba. You met the old man in the sea. Is that correct? When you were in Cuba? Gregorio Fuentes. Yeah, when was, was that? That was, that was when it was illegal to go to Cuba. Of course, that's why we wanted to go. It was technically not illegal to go to Cuba back then. It's illegal to spend money in Cuba. So we had to bring, we brought so much cash. It was a very, there was no embassy to go to. That was a little bit behind the scenes. That was 25 years ago. And Hemingway's boat captain who is widely accepted, including by his own, Hemingway talked about it, was the inspiration for Old Man the Sea. was still alive. He was 102 25 years ago. People can Google that. I might be off by a couple of years, but I'm not off by much. So that was a real, and so we'd heard that this was pre-internet and there's certainly no internet in, in Cuba. And we just go and we heard where he lived and the whole the village, he asked around and we heard basically he was a pensioner and Cuba, and if we brought a bunch of cookies, and if you brought food, and we brought um, we brought toothpaste, and we brought a bunch of little presents that were very, 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 very valued. And so his daughter took care of him, brought it, let us spend time with him, and he had a he had pictures of Hemingway, and he had a big painting of him and Hemingway together, and he had all sorts of pictures, and he showed us a scrapbook. And but the thing I still remember shaking his hand, he was a hundred and two, and uh, you shake his hand, and it was like shaking like the finest, hardest leather you ever, I mean, he still had it. His hand was full <laughs> of vice and leathery and strong. And this was a guy who was, you know, nearly quadruple my age, probably almost exactly quadruple. And he still had it. It, it was, you knew he was the real deal. Um, Cause even the decades after he probably retired, he still had that, that buildup. He told us stories. He told us that basically Hemingway took credit for the fish he caught but that he was a good guy. You know, he didn't speak any English. My Spanish is muy malo, a CFC. <laughs> but it was good enough to have a basic conversation. He took credit for the fish. He was very nice. He, you know, I miss him. You know, but just to touch the history, we took a picture with him. He passed a few years after that. But well, just he's a legend. To touch, to have, to, to even the legend, to touch history, to be one degree from Hemingway, which probably is pretty much impossible now, so... Right. It's really, that's really one of the interesting people I've ever heard anybody say they have met. 
In episode 25, Patricia Schultz, author of the New York Times bestseller, A Thousand Places to See Before You Die, also talks of meeting a special person in her travels. It's a story I especially love. When we, of all things, had our seven o'clock a.m. departure from Casablanca Airport canceled. We had gotten there at four o'clock in the dark of night as we were told it was canceled. We didn't know what to do. We were desperate to get to Fez. And we had thought the only way to get there was by air. It was over an hour flight. But in fact, you can go there by car. So we went outside the airport, fell into the wonderful company of Mohammed, who had a Mercedes cab, he told us. It was from another century. It was held together by duct tape. He was the loveliest man. And we said, um, we need to get to Fez, but first you have to take us to the best place in Casablanca for couscous because we've been up for eight hours and we're starved. And he said, no problem. Long story short, he took us home. <laughs> His mother had been cooking couscous. It was Friday or Saturday. It was the big day of the week for couscous for hours. We were welcomed like family. The whole village came. He lived in a suburb outside of Casablanca. He had two daughters who were studying French in school, in grade school, all they wanted to know about was Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake. We sat around the table. We ate with our hands. I'm not sure what we ate. It was some of the most delicious couscous, some of the most heartwarming. We were ready to cancel Fez. We just wanted wow. to Mohammed and his family. And when they saw us off, everybody from the neighboring buildings came back and waved us on. And it was the standout memory I'll have of many different trips to yes. you know, the, I, the, the hospitality you find in countries that until you visit, you see is maybe a little threatening or maybe not so safe turns out to be absolutely the difference. The, the- I agree with you. I think so many times it's the people that you remember the most. I can tell you also uh, in, in Greece, I'm thinking off the top of my head in Greece and in Russia and other places I've been in homes where people, our guide or someone I meet on the street has welcomed me and it's the memory I, I cherish the most yes. of the country. So thank you so much for that. You're absolutely <laughs> on target. We find out so many things we didn't know about on our podcast. And Karen Messeraka, author of Secret Sonoma, tells us about one of these surprises in Northern California wine country in episode 47. One of my favorite secrets is uh, out on the coast at uh, Goat Rock, a pile of rock right with the beach and everything, very beautiful. If you know where to look, you will see long scratches in the stone uh, above the beach. And what they are is Ice Age mammoths woolly mammoths with their tusks used to scrape along. They used to scratch their back and their tusks right along the goat rock beach in the ice. So that's something that you, well, without the book Secrets Sonoma, you'll never find that. (laughs) I would never. I've I've been there and I don't think I noticed that. And I'm going to go back. Good excuse, (laughs) right? Patrice Henry of the Korean Tourist Commission in New York tells of some amazing women in episode 36. One of my memories, special memories of of Jeju Island is the henyo, which is the sea woman. And they catch seafood for a living with only a knife while holding their breath. Some pretty much 80 years plus. And they they free dive down to 30 feet for minutes, depending on their experience. And you can still see some of these we call them sea mermaids at work and learn about their history and culture. 
in the Henio Museum on Jeju Island. For me, this was one of the most memorable experiences in Korea. And how about the power of nature? Here's a magical memory in episode 16 from Midgey Moore, co-author of 100 Things to Do in Alaska Before You Die, when she first saw the Northern Lights. Many, many years ago, I was an army wife and we were stationed at Fort Wainwright, Alaska, which is in Fairbanks. And I had moved there from Georgia. So I had not been in cold weather for a very long time. And it was in February and it was 70 below. It was a little, little chilly, but I had a job where I used to um, do singing telegrams in character. And so I was, my husband at the time was picking me up and driving me home from one of my little singing things. And as we're looking, or we're, and it's pitch black and we're, look, we're driving home, I look out the window and I see this, this stuff in the sky, these, these colors. And I was like, pull over, pull over, pull over. So he pulls over and the sky just came to a light with these beautiful colors and ribbons and they were swaying and it was almost musical. And it was my first time seeing the Northern Lights. And I, to this day, and this was over 30 years ago, to this day, I can still feel that feeling of awe and magic and wonder when people talk about it, because I was like, I know, I know. And it's very difficult to describe. You need to see it for yourself. Did you ever follow the Milky Way? Anne Bourne, who's walked the Camino de Santiago in northern Spain 10 times, tells of the magic in episode three. The actual real-life Milky Way up in the sky, the stars, actually follows the Camino Frances. And I, I had friends years ago who got up to start walking at 2 a.m. because it was going to be hot that day. And what they didn't anticipate was that they were going to be following the Milky Way. They, they were out in the middle of the meseta. It is miles and miles of what my mother would say, nothing but miles and miles. And they had this broad, incredible vista. They said the only thing they saw were the windmills in the the air, the wind turbines in the distance. And they saw the blinking and they thought it might be lightning. That was all they could see was stars. And it was spectacular. Food makes memories. Financial guru Gene Chasky, formerly of NBC's Today Show, shares a meal with us in episode 38. The one I was thinking about was a meal at a restaurant in San Francisco called the Zuni Cafe, which is famous for its roast chicken, which they serve on top of a salad that has, it's kind of a panzanella. It's it's a green salad, but it has big croutons in it that that's made from sort of a sourdough loaf and some raisins or currants in the salad. Go to the New York Times and you search for the Zuni Cafe chicken. They have actually published the recipe. And, and so now you can make it at home. And it's it's where my husband and I celebrated buying a house. We've celebrated other things there. And it's, it's just a special place for us. It's interesting how memories can be a site or a memory of a family or a delicious meal. That's what's so wonderful about travel. Whatever it may be, you will remember it and you will love it the rest of your life. It's a great investment. Travel is an investment in memory. Patty Esai, TikTok's popular Duchess of Decorum, tells of a special meal tradition in her homeland of Iran in episode 46. 
One of my favorite memories of Iran is being with my dad in the car and going to get the kebabs from the, the restaurant. And what you do is if you don't want to eat the kebabs at the restaurant, you take a big pot your own pot and you take it to the restaurant and they fill it up with rice and they fill it up with kebab and yeah, and they put the lid on it and then you bring that home. And we used to do that every weekend. We would do that. And that, that, that was just a a special time that I spent with my dad one-on-one and uh, to be able to do something cool like that was so much fun. I remember that very, very vividly. In episode 42, Deanne Birch, author of Journey Through Fire and Ice, shares the unusual meals she's had when she lived in a remote Arctic village. Actually, we did eat a lot of canned food. We had one night I didn't know what to cook, and I had been cutting up seals all day, and all of a sudden inspiration hit. I thought, oh, I know what I can do. I can cut up the seal liver for dinner. So fortunately, no bacon, but we did have onions, and I cooked up some kind of rotten... (laughs) Well, they were not the best onions. They had started to sprout, but I cut up the onions. I fried the liver, and believe it or not, the liver was better than cow's liver. Than really? Cow. Yeah, it, that it was very, very good. I remember I, I traveled to Greenland, and I went to a market, and I saw the seal liver all over, and I spoke to people who, who, who ate it, and they said it took the place very often of vegetables. There were so few vegetables. The vitamins in the liver were similar, and it was very important to eat that. We also, of course, if we went on a trip, we would take along dried fish and seal oil because that was what would keep us warm on the trip. Certainly wasn't my favorite kind of food, but it did keep us warm and it was easy to transport. Along with food, drinks can stir memories. Here are two concoctions that I had never heard about. The first is from Karen Wagner in episode 16 in Beverly Hills, California. Of course, the Beverly Wilshire, which is a Four Seasons Hotel, is the Pretty Woman Hotel and also has a lot of history and lore around it. It was built in 1928 on a former Speedway site, and they have uh, the Pretty Woman Cocktail, which is made with a fancy name for garbanzo bean liquid. What? (laughs) Yes, it's like a vegan, you know, to make it vegan. Um, And it's also peach and raspberry and and all of that. Good. It's (laughs) delicious. It's it's really delicious. I mean, I just think it's kind of an interesting, it's like when you find out that mole is made with chocolate, you know, it's just, oh, okay. That makes sense, sort of. Okay. Well, it worked for Pretty Woman. I don't know. The other drink memory is from Canadian Paul Melhus, CEO of Tours by Locals, with maybe one of the oddest drink stories in the world in episode 45. One of the things that I'd like to recommend to everybody is that you should fly to Whitehorse in the in the Yukon, Canada's Yukon, rent an SUV, and then drive from there to Tuktiaktuk, which is on the uh, Arctic Ocean. It's about, mm, I'm going to say... 1300 kilometers. And of course, you want to take a little side trip to uh, Dawson City. And you know, you have to go to the 
diamond tooth uh, girdies there and the, the hotel and taste the uh, sour toe cocktail. Uh, have you the heard sour of that? toe cocktail? Sour toe cocktail, Can yeah. Can you explain that one, please? Oh, sure, yes. Uh, so basically, you know, uh, it's cold in the north and people do get frostbite. So I don't know how this got started, but anyways, some guy donated his big toe that had got amputated because it was, you know, it had too bad a frostbite. And so they preserve it in salt in at this hotel and you you go there and there's a the tow captain is there and basically you buy a shot of whiskey he puts the tow into the whiskey and what? then you have to you have to drink it and you know the the poem is drink it fast drink it slow your lips must touch the gnarly toe <laughs> I've never heard of that before. Oh, it's really fun. How many times have you done that, Paul? I've done it once, but okay. you know, I, I'm like, you get a nice certificate, and I think I'm about uh, number 80,000 of people oh, that have goodness. done this experience. Yeah. So I think um, I'll pass on that one. But no, no, I love no. It's it. super fun. Yeah. Uh, but you know, if you uh, chew or uh, swallow the toe, there's a $2,500 fine because people <laughs> have done that. So, really? And it yes. comes out at the end, I guess. Uh, I imagine it does. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So yeah. (laughs) Anyways, that's a, uh, that's a a three day uh, detour to Dawson city and the the gold mining center of uh, the Yukon and then drive on the Dempster highway. It's fantastically beautiful. The uh, engineers who designed the uh, highway, I feel must've been poets because they couldn't have picked a more picturesque route through the north and it's really really worth give us another one with another digit (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly so yeah and then of course when you get to tuktiaktuk you you really ought to go swimming in the arctic ocean how cold is that um well you know salt water can get doesn't freeze at zero so the average surface temperature of the ocean there is about minus one degree centigrade so what would that be in Fahrenheit about 30 degrees yeah something like that yeah yeah you don't go for too long but it's worth a a quick dip I hope you enjoyed returning to some of our episodes over the past year and we'll get to our last memory a really special one in a minute but as I mentioned in the beginning of the episode places I remember will be going bi-weekly same format dropping episodes on Tuesday just every other week in 2022 We'll have more fabulous guests and wonderful places to remember around the world. And in mid-February, watch for us. We'll be talking travel on YouTube, also bi-weekly. Now relax if you can and listen to the words and music in this gorgeous rendition of a famous Irish ballad that Dubliner Joe Kern sang just for us in Episode 7 about Ireland. Thank you for listening. I appreciate all of you. And I'm going to drop the mic now on 2021, so take us out, Joe. On Raglan Road of an autumn day, I saw her first and knew that her dark hair would weave a stare that I might one day rue. I saw the danger and I passed along the enchanted way and I said
mad grief. Be a falling leaf at the dawning of the day. On Grafton Street in November, we tripped lightly along the ledge of a deep ravine where can be seen the worth of passion's pledge and the queen of hearts still making tarts and I'm not making hay oh I love too much and my such by such is happiness strong well, I gave her the gifts of the mind. I gave her a secret sign that's known to the artists who have known true gods of sound and tone. And word and tint I never did stint I gave her poems to say With her own name there And her long dark hair Like the clouds are the fields of May On a quiet street Where all goes meet I see her walking now Away from me So hurriedly My reasons must allow that I have loved not as I should a creature made of clay when the angel rules the clay
Thanks for listening to our award-winning podcast. We've recorded over 100 episodes of Places I Remember, so follow us on any podcast app. And new monthly episodes are also on YouTube with gorgeous video. My book, Places I Remember, is available in print and Kindle, and I read the audio version. Follow my travel writing at Forbes.com. Contact me at the links in the show notes or on my website, places I remember, and keep making your own travel memories. <laughs>